Welcome to this episode of the Medical Affairs Professional Society podcast series, Elevate. I'm your host, Garth Sundam, Communications Director at MAPS, and today we're speaking about the opportunities of real-world evidence with Kirsten Summers, Director of Client Solutions and Strategy at H1. This episode is sponsored by H1, whose platform helps life science companies, hospitals, academic medical centers, and health systems connect with providers, find clinical research, locate industry experts, and benchmark their organizations. So, Kirsten, uh, maybe you could get us started by refreshing our audience's memory of what we mean by real world evidence. Maybe we'll, we'll start with the historical take and then we'll move to the present. But what is real world evidence as we understand it? Yeah, it's a, it's a great question. And I think it's changed over time. You know, real world, the real world evidence of 10 years ago, even 15 years ago is very, very different than the real world evidence of today. And it even varies based on the disease ontology that you're focused on, right? Real world evidence in um, oncology, for instance, has become not just a method to identify um, safety around certain therapies, but also it's become a, a means of diagnostic identification of appropriate patients um, for more precision medicine. So, you know, I would say that real world evidence has, has developed um, very differently, not just as something that supports a more traditional randomized controlled trial, mm -hmm. um, but also now as a new means for um, drug label extensions and approval. You know, I, I think it's really interesting. Just a couple of weeks ago, um, the US FDA gave a draft guidance um, around the use of real world evidence. Um, and this is all part of a larger drive to revolutionize healthcare delivery, drug development, speed of which, um, you know, therapies that are important to patients get from um, pipeline, you know, into the hands of the people that, that really can benefit from them. Um, and so the, the interesting thing about the new guidance is that it actually gives um, specific direction around a, um, a uh, registry's uh, fitness um, for regular regulatory decision-making um, huh. based on attributes that would support collection of relevant and reliable data. Um, and so, you know, the big deal here, I think, is that um, the FDA's review of um, really draws attention to the fact that they're becoming open um, to registry data as part of submission packages and part of um, packages that provide for label extensions and things like that. It's, it's a huge deal, I think, that will impact the speed of the approval process and hopefully, you know, solve for some of the clinical inertia that, that, that doesn't make access to patients move as quickly as, as we'd like it to. Okay, so there's a lot to unpack there. <laughs> it's a really fun topic. It's interesting, it right? And, you know, one other thing I'll mention is our brand new FDA commissioner, um, Rob Caleb, is also a top expert in these types of trials, of real-world evidence. He's a huge proponent of it, so I'm excited to see kind of where that goes. What, what, uh, that's interesting. Is he a H-E-O-R guy or is he a... <laughs> he's, he's one of those people. He's one of those, um, he's a cardiologist by training. Um, and he, but he is an expert in health economics and outcomes research in, um, 
um, in uh, drug development, also yeah. in regulatory decision making. He was a he was a commissioner already. And they brought him, the Biden administration just brought him back. Um, but the big thing about him is that he has driven a lot of the innovation um, around, he's one of the godfathers, really, I would call him, of, of innovation and real world evidence and, and big data in healthcare. He actually went and, and worked at Google barely for a while um, uh-huh. before he was pulled into this. So he's a data guy too. It's pretty interesting. Okay. So real world evidence used to be used for safety monitoring, you know, a drug would be approved and everyone mm-hmm. would watch in the real world to see if, if bad things were happening. And now there are all these other uses. Um, one thing you mentioned that I thought was really interesting is that the new FDA guidance looks at the appropriateness of registries. So I'm sorry, are they somehow scoring the different massive data sets that are out there, like giving the SEER database some sort of appropriateness and giving different databases. So, and what I'm wondering for our audience is, should they be looking to certain sources of data and prioritizing those over others? Yeah, you know, because not all data sets are created equal. Not all. One of the things about big data is that there's so much of it. <laughs> Health systems and institutions don't always collect it the same way. So that's a tricky piece of it. The other part of it is that, you know, when it when you're looking at um, partnership um, on real world evidence type work, um, certain institutions, just as though just as they're known for certain um, disease area expertise, yep. um, they are also known for certain areas of disease area expertise, also in real world evidence, which is a different kind of view. And you know the the guidance really um, provides important um, information for uh, like around um, supplemental data that needs to be included and looked at, like rigor around medical claims data. Um, electronic health records, um, digital health technologies that are being utilized for patient monitoring and engagement, um, and other, you know, uh, connectivity with other registries and things like that. So where, you know, sometimes you've got, um, you've got institutions now that are data sharing across multiple institutions based on certain um, patient types and combining data. Um, and mining it to be able to identify um, certain um, certain signals that you might want to see um, that can help inform patient management, patient health, all that sort of stuff. Okay, well, let's go to these data sources. So if, if we take data as kind of the starting point, um, how does that inform our action? So if we look at something mm-hmm. like uh, claims registry or, or other data source, what then can medical affairs teams do from this starting point? Yeah, I think it's, it's I think data and, and looking at data is a really big and important clue. And it's a big and important piece of, of rigor that you need before you decide who you're going to approach um, where, when, and how for different types of um, real world work. Um, and that can be, you know, we understand through diagnostic claims data, um, the institutions, even the people who are seeing lots and lots of a certain patient type or a certain patient demographic. Um, we can um, also understand by other data points, such as publications around um, this type of expertise. So 
therapeutic area, clinical expertise is one thing and clinical development, clinical trial development expertise is, is uh, you know, a piece of knowledge as well. But identifying correct investigators and people to partner with that understand very well and have um, demonstrated interest in these real world type studies um, is also a key and important piece of, of determining which institution you might partner with, um, which investigator you might approach. Um, and, you know, often and, and really finding um, synergies between their goals and their um, patient management and overall patient health of their population and and what you're trying to accomplish organizationally, just like you would really be choosy about who you partner with on a randomized controlled trial. You have to be really choosy the same thing, the same way about um about um, real world evidence. And then you even go broader sometimes with that too, because often you're looking at partnering with health systems, not just, um, not just an institution, because health systems have lots and lots of data. But we also can understand easily too about health systems, the patient populations that they have. Um, if, if for instance, it's important to your organization to understand through means of real world data um, certain um, patient groups, maybe it's based on um, based on race, or you want to look at a, a diverse patient population that's underserved. You would be able to, through claims data, through understanding of um, of the patient mix of a certain um, in either institution or health system, you might understand better how to how to position your your work in a way that's going to give you um, and that institution meaningful outputs. Okay, so that's interesting. So real world evidence within claims data or wherever you find it um, can be used to identify who and how to run a subsequent RWE study. Can it also help medical affairs teams identify which studies to run? Yeah, <laughs> I would say that you know, that's a tricky one because identifying which studies to run is something that has to, has to fill. There's usually a data gap that has yeah. to be filled. Right. And so organizations from a medical affairs perspective, and a lot of times there's um, health economics and outcomes research uh, colleagues from within your organization that get involved in that too, to identify, okay, we've had a randomized controlled trial. We have this evidence and this data. Now, which, um, you know, which data gaps are really, are we trying to seek or fill by way of real world evidence? Do we, do we, are we conducting real world evidence simply to be supportive of the data, the safety and efficacy data in our randomized controlled trial? Or are we running this real world evidence research so that we can better understand um, specific um, disease manifestations in a particular patient population because we don't we didn't look at that in random in our RCT and also we know there's an unmet medical need there and we want to learn more um, so I would say that it, it's sort of an organizational identification first mm -hmm. and then secondly where is the best place to partner with to fill that data gap okay cool so the the organization is identifying the gaps. Mm -hmm. Our RWE is teaching us, or giving us the opportunity to fill it. Absolutely. And, you know, the thing is too, is because, because organizations 
partner a lot with a lot of different scientific experts to help them understand too where their data gaps are, where there's need, all of that sort of stuff. Um, when they're conducting data gap analyses, it's oftentimes um, beneficial to have the right types of thought leadership that you're engaging with um, for advisory boards to help inform these mm-hmm. um, types of questions. So, you know, one of the things I think that is, and I'm going, I'm going way back, like strategy around that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, but what's really, I think, important for organizations to always include when they're considering um, advisory boards, when they're even even further back in in drug development, working with people who understand um, registries, real world evidence, and how to appropriately leverage data um, in ways that can help support regulatory submission packages and stuff like that is critically important. It's not just working with the people who are the known people to design clinical trials, um, or the known people who are no, are experts in treatment of this particular disease. It's not enough anymore. You have to be designing your clinical trials in a way that is um, either producing data sets that are appealing to payers and health systems uh, health systems decision makers, and also um, even the FDA and, and building these things in as part of your submission uh, packages. Well, so you talk about the submission package and, and even label change. Um, you know, it's always been that, you know, you needed the RCT to get that, to get that label change or to get the, you know, submission package. Is that, is that changing? Is RWE now a more important part of the label? Um, it's, it's becoming, you know, oncology is actually a really great example of how RWE has become a critical piece. And it's, it's starting to happen more in, in, in chronic conditions, but I would say with, you know, with oncology, um, it's become this huge enabler to measure the benefits and risks associated with not only treatments and development, mm-hmm. but, um, but understanding and utilizing data mining around genomic profiling um, as a standard of care has made real world evidence, sort of this tool for oncology for precision medicine. Mm-hmm. Um, and so they're using really population level, high quality, real world data to inform target identification, um, optimize their study designs, um, and deliver like in real time insights and signals that help inform clinical practice. Um, and this is happening in a much more efficient way um, than with traditional label extension and approvals by way of RCT. Now, is there a danger with RWE in, yeah, and this is a, a, a loaded uh, phrase, but <laughs> in, in moving fast and breaking things, is, is, there a, is, there a, is there a danger in the speed of RWE? You know, it's... <laughs> I think that 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 is, that's a super loaded question. And it's not a question that I think is my question to answer. Mm -hmm. I think that's a question that the scientific community is working really, really hard to answer. The other piece of it though, I think that's when it's done right. And when they're with the, with the availability of so much data, um, and with now you've got all of these people, scientific experts, regulatory decision makers coming together and really saying, okay, we know this is important. 
we really want to increase speed. And, and actually, we believe that in some ways, real world evidence could be um, the future of how we develop medications and things like that. I, I think there's some, there's always going to be, there's always going to be risky wonky things with speed. I, but there's always risky wonky things, even with randomized controlled trials, okay. right? Because we learn things later um, all the time in, in clinical development. It's, it's a, it's a, because the, by nature research is, the researching of things that we know. We test theories, right? Continuously. So the cool thing I think about real world evidence is that you're, you have a way of continuously identifying a lot of other things related to certain populations, um, certain disease ontologies that perhaps you wouldn't have even caught in a signal in a randomized controlled trial um, in a way that you can with, with real world evidence. But I, yeah. you know, again, I'm not a real world evidence, you know, trialist by any stretch of the imagination. So that would be a question to me, like, is there risk of speed? I think some of the people would say, I think there's a risk of not speeding up Yeah. because what we have with, with RCTs is, you know, just because innovative medicines come to market doesn't mean patients have access to them. You know, people right now, randomized controlled trials are being developed for phase two. They won't be in the hands of patients for another, you know, eight to 10 years. And then the other piece of it is once they're approved, clinical inertia is a big, big problem here in the United States, right? Like um, it's, you know, clinical inertia contributes to inadequate um, management and control of chronic disease care. Um, it's a leading cause of potentially preventable disability, adverse events, and even death, right? So, and this is usually due to a physician or institutions. This is, this is controversial, but it's usually <laughs> due to a physician or institution's overestimation of the quality of care that they're delivering. Uh, reluctance to intensify or try new therapies because people are funny about being the first. We yeah, saw this yeah. with COVID vaccines. It's been like a great business case that's rolled out before our eyes. Um, and then also the most important piece of it is lack of education and awareness and uh, for the physicians, the practicing clinician and, you know, the payers and the health systems who put together pathways and protocols and things like that. So Boy, um, you know, I, I think there's, I think there's two sides to that, you know, speed equals access to a lot of patients who need therapy. Um, but I think it's to be, I think it's to be determined and not for me to decide if that's a, if that's a, a danger from a, from a, um, pharmacologic or, or patient safety perspective. Well, first that of was all, a long winded answer. No, Sorry, no, 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 no. <laughs> I feel like I went in circles for that one. I can see why oncology is leading the way because you need access now to th things that could work better. You know, I also would love to do a, a, a whole nother episode on clinical inertia because I think that is mm -hmm. a fascinating phenomenon. But I, I wanted to circle back and ask if <laughs> things circle back uh, in that does RWE now, is it influencing the choice and design of clinical trials? So are we going back? Okay. It used to be clinical trials and then you monitor it with RWE, right? Is RWE now feeding back into the design of clinical trials? 
Yeah, absolutely. Because it's, it's become, it's become really, really difficult because we've got so many, there's so many drugs on the market, right? There's so many, and there's so much complex, um, treatment pathways and protocols that are, that are needed to be developed in order to support precision medicine, mm-hmm. that the randomized controlled trial it doesn't really allow for true precision medicine, because you're really, you're looking at however we define standard of care, which is usually a, a significant volume of pharmacologic intervention, right? Plus whatever the new one thing is. Um, and it, with a lot of these disease areas, and you mentioned oncology, that's really, really hard because there's a tremendous amount of, um, of work that's being done to, to really be able to identify all of these different tumor types, all of these different things happening that when, if you, if you were to develop an RCT for each and everything you would have, it would be, you couldn't afford to do it, right? Because you'd have to have so many different ones in all sorts of ways, shapes, and forms. So really the, the traditional randomized controlled trial, I think while still an, still an important piece of development, I, I don't know, we could all speculate on, on what the, how those, how these things come together in the future. Whereas right now, you know, you have your RCT, but perhaps all at the same time, you're collecting and observing all of this data for potential label extensions to look at other patient populations. You've, you've established, you know, the safety and efficacy here um, and gotten approval based on that. But what we're seeing is more, um, more openness um, of regulators to view um, real world, real world data as part of, you know, expanding access to different patient types on an already kind of approved drug. Well, and that brings us back to where we started, which is that RWE is now being recognized as a very valid source of, of, you know, more formalized information about emerging treatments. So let's, let's leave it at that. Uh, Thanks. Are we done already? We're done already. (laughs) Oh my goodness gracious. (laughs) But you got to come back because this is fun. So thanks for joining us today uh, to learn more about how your organization can partner with H1 to unlock key insights and opportunities for industry engagement to create a healthier future. Visit h1.co. MAPS members, don't forget to subscribe. And we hope you enjoyed this episode of the Medical Affairs Professional Society podcast series, Elevate.